Mark chapter 14, Jesus' Betrayal, Arrest, and Trial, verses 1 and 2. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So the time here is significant because there was at Passover not only a great expectation of the Messiah, but Jerusalem was also crowded with these Messiah-expecting multitudes. You can see the irony here. Since Passover remembered the time when God raised up a great deliverer and freed Israel from foreign oppression, it was a time of great patriotic and messianic anticipation. The Romans were on guard and ready for any hint of revolt. And so every possible preparation was made for the Passover. A month, uh, about a month ahead of time, the meaning of Passover was explained in every synagogue and Jewish school so that no one was unprepared. And as pilgrims streamed into Jerusalem, they noticed that every tomb near a road was painted with fresh whitewash to prevent them from defiling themselves accidentally by brushing against a tomb. And so every male Jew who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem had to come to Jerusalem for Passover. Many more came from even greater distances, including Galilee. And many people who heard and saw Jesus in the region of Galilee were here with great respect and great expectation regarding Jesus. And so the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were held one after the other. And so the two festivals were merged and treated for practical purposes as the seven-day Feast of the Passover. And so as the chief priest and the scribes plotted the murder of an innocent man, it showed that they did not fear God. Nevertheless, they feared the people. These religious leaders were not afraid to murder the Son of God. They just believed they had to do it in a politically smart way. And so the religious leaders did not want to kill Jesus during the Passover feast, but they ended up doing it during that time anyway. This clearly shows that Jesus was in command, and though the leaders acted according to evil inclination of their hearts, their actions just fulfilled the prophecy and the plan of Jesus. And so from John chapter 11, verse 57, it seems that the religious leaders originally intended to seize Jesus during the feast, when they saw the popularity of Jesus at the triumphal entry and his authority on the Temple Mount, they changed their minds and decided to do it after the feast. So their plan changed again when Judas volunteered to arrange a private, quiet arrest. Verse 3, <clears throat> And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. So John's account of this incident in John chapter 12 tells us that this was Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And it's not the same event as when the sinful woman brought the alabaster box with ointment, broke it, and anointed Jesus' feet. Uh, that occasion was precious, but it was different in that the woman was overwhelmed with her own sense of sinfulness and adoration to her pardoning Lord. Mary seems focused on Jesus alone, not even on her own forgiven sin. It's a great thing to love Jesus for all he's done for us. It can be greater still to love him simply for who he is in all of his wonder and majesty. 
And so we get this extravagant display of devotion to Jesus. Often spices and ointments were used as investments because they were small, portable, and could easily be sold. And so the flask was a small bottle with a thin neck, and breaking the neck of the bottle opened it. And so Mark's wording will indicate that she poured the entire contents of the Bible, or the, excuse me, the bottle, on the head of Jesus. <laughs> and so when... <laughs> When a guest arrived for a meal, it was customary to anoint the guest head with a dab of oil. Here, the woman went a lot further than the customary greeting. She poured the entire contents of an alabaster flask of a very costly oil on the head of Jesus. And uh, this was a wonderful, perceptive act of Mary. Jesus just rode into Jerusalem as a king, and shouldn't kings be anointed? Mary understood this, but the disciples did not. And Mary did this without a word. We gather that her sister Martha was quite a talker, but Mary was a doer. She didn't announce what she was going to do. She didn't describe it as she did it, nor did she explain it after she did it. She just did it. And so when Mary was finished, she didn't look to the disciples and ask their opinion of what she did. Um, she just did it on her own. Verse 4 through 9. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world... What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So John chapter 12 verses 1 through 8 will tell us that it was specifically Judas who was indignant about the expense here. His indignation was entirely self-serving. And John chapter 12 verse 6 will say this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was to put in it. So it's easy to criticize those who show more love to Jesus than we do. We sometimes want to define a fanatic as someone who is more devoted to Jesus than we are. And Judas might have started the criticism, but he wasn't alone for long. Mark made it clear that they criticized her sharply. Each one looked at the oil on Jesus' head and considered it wasted. Mary probably started to wonder if she did something wrong. And it's interesting that the word translated waste in verse 4 is translated perdition in John 17 verse 12 and it's applied to Judas. Judas criticized Mary for wasting money but he wasted his entire life. And so this particular alabaster flask seems to have been worth more than a year's wages for a laborer. And uh, the disciples thought that this extravagant anointing with oil was a waste but Jesus received it as a good work. And with her simple love and devotion to Jesus, Mary understood what the disciples did not, that Jesus was about to die, and she intended this gift as a preparation for his burial. And so <clears throat> she's done a good work. In the Greek, there are two words for good. There is agathos, which described a thing which is morally good, and there is kalos, which describes a thing which is not only good, but it's lovely. A thing might be agathos and yet be hard, stern, austere, and unattractive. But the thing which is kalos is winsome and lovely with a certain bloom of charm upon it. 
So Jesus gave her the highest compliment. She has done what she could. God expects no more from us than we can do. But beware of setting your sights so low that you believe that doing nothing is doing what you can. And there can be no higher commendation than this. All cannot do great things for Christ, but it is well if each one does what he can as unto the Lord himself. So Mary's act was all the more precious because it was planned. It became beforehand. It's not spontaneous, not seized by the moment kind of action. It was carefully planned beforehand. And so apparently Mary listened and believed the teaching of Jesus in a way that the other disciples simply did not. When he said that he would be delivered into the hands of wicked men and mocked and scourged and crucified, she believed it. She said, if my precious Jesus will be mocked and tortured like this, then allow me to give him some special honor. And it'll seem that the disciples did not want to think about the death of Jesus. When Peter heard of it, he tried to talk Jesus out of it. Mary had a different devotion, and instead of debating or denying his death, she turned it into an occasion of deep devotion. So Jesus knew that he was going to die, but he did not waver in confidence one bit. He also knew that he would rise from the dead, that this gospel would be preached in the whole world. And so the disciples longed for fame and influence, but this woman found an enduring memorial. She found it not by longing for a position, but by simply just loving Jesus and serving him. Verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So many will speculate on the motive of Judas here. Perhaps his feelings were hurt when Judas... Uh, Jesus rebuked him after Mary poured the ointment over Jesus' feet. Perhaps it was plain greed. Some will speculate that Judas wanted to force Jesus into an open display of messianic glory. Um, and Matthew 26 verse 15 will make it clear that Judas bargained with the religious leaders for the life of Jesus. He asked them, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And certainly part of his motivation was pure greed. And whatever Judas' motive was, it was his motive, not God's. God used the wicked work of a willing Satan who used a willing Judas. God ordained that these things would happen, but he did not prompt Judas to sin. See the difference? And so the religious leaders had wanted to destroy Jesus for a long time. You'll remember that back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Now they had a precious ally, one of the disciples that was willing to betray him. Verse 12 through 16. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. And so we get this unusual sight. Women usually carried liquids in pitchers and men normally carried liquids in animal skin containers. Therefore, a man carrying a pitcher was a distinctive sign to the disciples. And so the scene here will imply secrecy. 
and Jesus had good reason to quietly make arrangements for Passover. Jesus didn't want Judas to betray him before he could give a final important talk to the disciples. The timing was crucial. And so there seems to be a difference between the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John about the Passover. The implication in the synoptic gospels is that Jesus was crucified on the day after Passover and that this meal was the day before. John seems to say that Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover itself as the Passover lamb in John chapter 18 verse 28 and chapter 19 verse 14. So let's look at this. Possibly the best explanation is that there were different calendars in use. Jesus died as the Passover victims were being slain according to the official calendar, but he held the Passover with his followers in the previous evening according to the unofficial calendar. Uh, none of the synoptic Gospels mentions a lamb at the Passover meal. Some believe that this was um, this is because they could not obtain one before the official day of Passover. And Jesus may have wanted it this way in order to emphasize the idea that he was the Passover sacrifice. Verse 17 through 21. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. And son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So, at the first Passover, God commanded them to eat the meal standing and ready to leave Egypt in Exodus 12, verse 11. And since Israel came into the promised land, they believed that they could eat the Passover sitting or reclining because now they were at rest in the land that God gave them. And the disciples heard many surprising things from Jesus, but certainly this is one of the most surprising things they ever heard. None of them suspected Judas, and the idea that one of them would seek to betray and kill Jesus must have seemed absurd. In saying who dips with me, Jesus did not single out Judas, though Judas sitting in the place of honor would have been given the special portion. All the disciples dipped with him, so the phrase identified the betrayer as a friend. And so in Middle Eastern culture, betraying a friend after eating a meal with him was and is regarded as the worst kind of treachery. And so Judas is rightly regarded as one of the most notorious sinners of all time. Even though his actions fulfilled prophecy, his own wicked motive condemned him. Judas will never be able to justify himself before God on the day of judgment by claiming, I was fulfilling prophecy. So, in the warning of Jesus, we see a profound love for Judas. This was his last fleeting opportunity to turn back from his evil plot. A remarkable thing to remember is that Jesus loved both Mary and Judas. We almost want to think that he loved Mary and hated Judas, but that isn't the case. If we miss his love towards Judas, rejected love to be sure, if we miss that love, then we miss the whole story. Verse 22 through 25. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. 
And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So when the bread was lifted up at Passover, the head of the meal would say, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. So everything eaten at the Passover meal had a symbolic meaning. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery. The salt water remembered the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. The main course of the meal, a lamb freshly sacrificed for that particular household, did not symbolize anything connected to the agonies of Egypt. It was the sin-bearing sacrifice that allowed the judgment of God to pass over the household that believed. So Jesus didn't give the normal explanation of the meaning to each of the foods. He reinterpreted them in himself. And the focus was no longer on the suffering of Israel in Egypt, but on the sin-bearing suffering of Jesus on their behalf. So, this is my body. Christians have debated for centuries about the true nature of the bread and the cup at this supper. And so, the Roman Catholic Church holds the idea of transubstantiation which teaches that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther held the idea of consubstantiation, which teaches the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, but by faith they are the same as Jesus' actual body. Luther did not believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of substantiation, uh, or transubstantiation, sorry, but he did not go too far from it. John Calvin taught that Jesus' presence in the bread and wine was real, but it was only spiritual, not physical. Uh, Zwingli taught that the bread and wine are symbols that represent the body and blood of Jesus. According to scripture, we can understand that the bread and the cup are not mere symbols, but they are powerful pictures to partake of, to enter into, as we see the Lord's table as the new Passover. So we can't get so caught up in discovering what the bread and the cup mean that we forget to do what Jesus said to do with them. We need to take and eat. Take means that it won't be forced upon you. You have to receive it. Eat means that this is absolutely vital for you. Without food and drink, we perish. Without Jesus, we perish. It also means that you must take Jesus into your innermost being. And so, beyond all the controversy about what the elements of this supper really are and what they really mean, the announcement that Jesus brings a new covenant stands out. And uh, no mere man could ever institute a new covenant between God and man. But Jesus is the God-man, right? Son of God. He has the authority to establish a new covenant, sealed with blood, even as the old covenant was sealed with blood in Exodus 24, verse 8. This covenant is focused on an inner transformation that cleanses us from all sin. And Jeremiah 31 verse 34 will say, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this transformation puts God's word and will in us. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. So this covenant is all about what a new close relationship with God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. 
So Jesus has not yet celebrated a Passover in heaven. He still waits for all of his people to be gathered to him. And then there will be a great supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. This is the fulfillment in the kingdom of God that Jesus longed for. All right, verse 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. So we don't often think of Jesus singing, but here he clearly did. He lifted his voice in adoration and worship to God the Father. And we can endlessly wonder what his voice sounded like, but we know for certain that he sang with more than just his voice. He lifted his whole heart up in praise. And this will remind us that God wants to be praised with singing. And so it's remarkable that Jesus could even sing on this night before his crucifixion, right? Could you sing in such circumstances? Would you let Jesus be your worship leader? And this means that we should sing to God our Father just like Jesus did, because this is something that pleases him. And when we love someone, we want to do the things that please them. It really doesn't matter if it does or does not please us. And... uh, It's wonderful that Jesus sang, but what did he sing? At a Passover meal, it always ended with singing three psalms known as the Hallel. And you'll remember that from our study in the book of Psalms. These were the psalms 116 through 118, right? And uh, surely the words of these psalms ministered to Jesus as he sang them on the night before his crucifixion. Because there are vivid pictures of what was going to happen to him. And so when Jesus arose to go to Gethsemane, Psalm 118 was on his lips. It provided an appropriate description of how God would guide his Messiah through times of distress and suffering to glory. And so Jesus tarried with him in the upper room for a wonderful discourse and prayer in John 14 through 17. They might have gone out to the street after John chapter 14 verse 31. So Jesus said this not to condemn his disciples, right? All of you are going to be made to stumble. He's going to show them that he was really in command of the situation and to demonstrate that the scriptures regarding the suffering of the Messiah must be fulfilled. This is not the first time Jesus warned Peter and the other disciples that they would forsake him. From a careful reconstruction of the Gospels, we find that Jesus first warned them about this in the upper room, now again in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is going to show that, uh, you know, I've been raised, that Jesus was already looking beyond the cross. He had his eyes fixed on the joy set before him in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And so we wonder how Peter could ever say such a thing. Uh, You know, if, if everybody's made a stumble, yet I will not be. Oftentimes, Peter, the only time he took his foot out of his mouth was to put the other foot in. And so tragically, Peter was unaware of both the spiritual reality and the spiritual battle that Jesus clearly saw ahead of him. Peter only looked to how he felt at the moment, and at that moment, he felt pretty brave. <clears throat> but we can still we can still praise Peter for his 
um, for the fire in his faith. And so assuredly, Peter, despite his bold proclamation that he would never be made to stumble, he was going to fail in what he thought was his strong area, courage and boldness. And though this solemn warning, Jesus gave Peter an opportunity to take heed and consider his own weakness. Sadly, it was an opportunity that Peter did not take. He spoke more vehemently. He doubled down. He's like, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus knew Peter far better than Peter did. And in overestimating himself, Peter was set up for a fall. And so the rest of the disciples also overestimated their strength and did not rely on the Lord in the critical hour. They all said likewise. The Apostle Paul warned us against falling where we think we are strong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed unless he falls. And so, when we think we're beyond the reach of some sins, we are ready for a fall. Verse 32 to 36. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So this was, uh, Gethsemane was a place just east of the Temple Mount area of Jerusalem, across the ravine of the Brook Kidron, and on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. It's surrounded by ancient olive trees. Gethsemane means olive press. And it was a place where olives from the neighborhood were crushed for their oil. So too, the Son of God was going to be crushed here. And so Jesus knew what his Father will was, yet he still endured this agony. It's because Jesus was to be a sacrifice for sins, and he wasn't an unknowing sacrificial animal. He knew what was ahead of him. Nor was he a victim of circumstances. He resolved willingly to lay down his life. And it's not so much the horror of physical torture that affected Jesus so. It was the spiritual horror of the cross, of being made sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That is what made Jesus troubled and deeply distressed. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 will describe Jesus' agony in the Gethsemane event, which says, uh, Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear? Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So in this moment of deep distress, Jesus didn't feel far from God the Father. He felt so close to the Father that he used the name Abba, which is a child's familiar name for Daddy. And so in response to Jesus' deeply moved prayers, the Father did not take that cup from Jesus. Instead, he strengthened Jesus to be able to take that cup and drink it. And so what is this cup? Repeatedly in the Old Testament, the cup is a powerful picture of the wrath and judgment of God. It's in Psalm 75, verse 8, Isaiah 51, verse 17, and Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God, who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink from that cup. This was the source of Jesus' agony. And so Matthew 20, verse 22 and 23, will speak of a cup that the followers of Jesus must also drink. 
And so Jesus came to a point of decision in Gethsemane. It wasn't that he had not decided nor consented before, but now he came upon a critical, unique point of decision. He drank the cup at Calvary, but he decided once for all to drink it at Gethsemane. The struggle of the cross was won at the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? So this struggle at Gethsemane, the place of crushing, it had an important place in fulfilling God's plan of redemption. If Jesus failed here, he would have failed at the cross. His success here made the victory at the cross possible. And so Jesus wasn't asking for permission to let humanity perish in hell. He's asking the Father if there's any other possible way to save humanity other than the agony which awaits me at the cross, let it be. Yet, clearly, there was no other way, so Jesus went to the cross. So this prayer of Jesus will eliminate any other way of salvation. If there was any other way, his death was not necessary and his prayer was not answered. Some will criticize this kind of prayer in the mouth of a Christian, saying it's a prayer that lacks faith, right? Not what I will, but what you will. But to pray not what I will, but what you will is a prayer of great faith and trust in God, because we're trusting in his will, not ours. If such a prayer insults God, then Jesus insulted his father at this crucial moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're trying to incorporate ourselves into his plan, not him into our sinful plans. Verse 37 through 42. I say sinful plans because from us, we naturally, sin comes out. Just like Peter, when he tried to rebuke Jesus, he didn't realize he was speaking from a sinful position. We want to incorporate and understand God's will, not our own. Verse 37 through 42. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come, and behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see... My betrayer is at hand. So at this moment of great agony, Jesus was alone. His disciples gave him no support at all. And though this was not to their credit, they failed Jesus, it was the way it had to be. Jesus had to face the terror of the cross all alone. And it's not necessary to see Jesus as irritated at his disciples. He said this in love and in compassionate understanding. He knew them better than they knew themselves. And so Jesus knew Peter would fail, yet he encouraged him to victory, knowing that the resources are found in watching and praying. If Peter woke up both physically and spiritually and drew close to dependence on God, he would have kept from denying Jesus at that critical hour. And so Jesus found victory at the cross by succeeding in the struggle in Gethsemane. Peter, just like us, failed in later temptation because he failed to watch and pray. The spiritual battle is often won or lost before the crisis comes. And Jesus repeats the prayer outlined in Mark chapter 14, verse 34 through 36. Some say it'll be unspiritual or it reflects a lack of faith to repeat prayers. Yet we could never accuse Jesus of being unspiritual or lacking faith. So three times Jesus prayed. Three times Jesus checked to see if his disciples would stand by him in prayer and pray for their own strength in the coming trial. They were asleep each time. It's bad enough that the disciples didn't watch him pray for themselves. 
but they would have been willing to watch and pray simply for the sake of Jesus. And through prayer and companionship, we must stand beside others in their time of need. And so we should not think that Jesus was angry or irritated because his disciples didn't help him. He wanted the disciples to help him and stand in prayer, not for his own sake, but for their own benefit. Jesus could stand alone against the trial of the cross, but they, being without prayer, obviously could not. Verse 43 through 52. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So apparently Jesus was normal enough in appearance that it was necessary for Judas to identify him. Uh, he chose to identify Jesus by greeting him with a kiss. And with cruelty, Judas pretended to be an affectionate and then added Rabbi, Rabbi to the greeting. So John chapter 18 verse 10 identifies this unnamed swordsman as Peter. Uh, struck the servant of the high priest. Here, Peter was a great example of someone who, wielding the power of this world in his hands, could only cut off ears. So when he wielded the word of God, Peter pierced hearts for God's glory in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. <laughs> and so Jesus marveled that they sent a small army to arrest him, yet he was in command here. And with a word, he could destroy all those who came to arrest him. But Jesus went along in order to fulfill scripture. And at this point, all the disciples scattered and ran for their own safety. A few, Peter and John at least, followed back to see what would happen at a distance. None of them stood beside Jesus and said, I've given my life to this man. What you accuse him of, you may accuse me of also. Instead, it was fulfilled what Jesus said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me. In Mark chapter 14, verse 27. So Jesus was forsaken even by a young follower, who in the confusion fled naked. Since the earliest days of the church, commentators have supposed this young man to be Mark himself. It was a humble way of saying, I was there. So many people will suppose that the upper room where Jesus held the Last Supper just a few hours earlier was at the home owned by Mark's family. Acts 12 verse 12 will say that the disciples used to meet at the home of Mark's mother. It may be that the arresting army led by Judas first came to Mark's home because that is where Judas last left Jesus. When Judas and the group came and found them gone, it would have been easy for Judas to suppose that they went to Gethsemane because Jesus was accustomed to going there in Luke 22, verse 39. So when Judas and the group started out for Gethsemane, we can imagine that young Mark hurriedly dressed in a simple linen cloth and set out to beat Judas and his gang to Gethsemane so that he could warn Jesus. And so it's usually supposed that Mark himself, son of Mary, in whose house they probably had observed the Passover meal and had followed Jesus and the apostles to the garden. <clears throat> so Mark did not record the preliminary trial before Annas, or Annas, 
who was the real power behind the high priest office that's recorded in John chapter 18 verse 12 and 13 and verse 19 through 23 nor did he record the second trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin the official daylight trial that's recorded in Luke 22 verse 66 through 71 and there are some similarities between the trials because the same people are involved there are actually three phases of Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities and three phases of his trial before the Roman authorities, and they could not be, you know, they shouldn't be confused. All of them illegal. And uh, upon his arrest, Jesus was first taken to Annas, uh, then to an illegal night court of the Sanhedrin, which Mark will describe next, and then to an official daylight trial of the Sanhedrin, then to Pilate, who sent Jesus to Herod, who sent Jesus back to Pilate. Where he then goes to the cross. Verse 53 through 59. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, but within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So this trial of Jesus was terribly illegal according to Jewish law. There was much in the Jewish legal uh, process to protect the rights of the accused. And all of this was ignored and deliberately broken by those who were determined to put Jesus to death. So Jesus, as recorded in John chapter 2, verse 19, spoke clearly of the temple of his body. Jesus never said the words reported by his false accusers. Essentially, they accused Jesus of being a terrorist who wanted to destroy the temple. And so, though it was a false case, the accusers of Jesus could not put together a good case. The false witnesses kept disagreeing with one another. Verse 60 through 62. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So for greater uh, solemnity, he arose to make up the bluster for the lack of evidence here. And so Jesus could have mounted a magnificent defense here, calling forth all the various witnesses to his deity, power, and character. The people he taught, the people he healed, the dead that were risen, the blind who could see, even the demons themselves that testified to his deity. But Jesus opened not his own mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In Isaiah 53 verse 7. So Jesus, when asked under formal oath to incriminate himself, essentially said, You now stand in judgment of me, but I will be the ultimate judge. And so these words would have given any wise judge pause, but did not slow down his accusers. And so here we see that Jesus was on trial. He seemed to lose, but he really won. His conduct at his trial showed his innocence and was all part of the plan of redemption, which we have to receive as God's gift. In a real sense, it wasn't Jesus on trial at all. It's more accurate to say that the religious leaders were on trial. They seemed to win, but they really lost here. In fact, we are all on trial before Jesus and will be held to account for what we do with him. 
is going to hold us accountable for what we do with his message with our faith or what those do without faith at all we will be held accountable verse 63 through 65 then the high priest tore his clothes and said what further need do we have of witnesses you have heard the blasphemy what do you think and they all condemned him to be deserving of death then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and say to him prophesy and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands so first they reacted with self-righteous melodramatic horror then with abuse and brutality and as terrible as the judgment of the religious leaders against jesus was at least it had a reason envy and fear of jesus these officers taking a bizarre pleasure in torturing jesus didn't even have a reason they did it only because of what others the religious leaders said about jesus and so understanding that jesus endured all this pain and humiliation should cause us to respond in three ways one we should bravely bear pain and humiliation for the sake of jesus ourselves right how ready should we be to hear slander and ridicule for jesus sake so don't get into a huff and think it's a strange thing that people should mock you <clears throat> And we should be more diligent to praise Jesus. That's number two, right? How earnestly next, you know, should we honor our dear Lord? If men were so eager to put him to shame, let us be ten times more earnest to bring him to glory. And number three, we should have more assurance and confidence in receiving the finished work of Jesus for our redemption. Surely I know that he who suffered this, since he was verily the son of the blessed, must have ability to save us. Such griefs must be a full atonement for our transgressions. Glory be to God. Verse 66 through 72. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them, but he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. So as Mark concludes the story of Peter's denial, in verse 66 through 72, he does it as a flashback. This didn't happen as Jesus was beaten, but as he was on trial. Peter's first problem was that he followed him at a distance. In verse 54, when we distance ourselves from Jesus, it's hard to make a proper stand for him at the critical time. Next, Peter sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And Peter found fellowship and warmth in the company of the ungodly, having forsaken the fellowship of the fleeing disciples. Peter wanted to seem as just one of the crowd, not a follower of Jesus. And the officers of uh, verse 65 who struck Jesus are the same people as the servants in verse 54, because the same ancient Greek word is used to both groups. So Peter sat and associated himself with the same men who beat Jesus, and they beat him just because someone else told them that Jesus was a wicked man. So a hostile man of authority interrogated Jesus. Peter did not face this kind of interrogation. Only one of these little servant girls. But she was enough to make Peter deny Jesus. 
Peter, who is as bold as he was. <clears throat> and so yet all this evil sprung from the fear of man. How many denials of Christ and his truth have sprung since from the same cause? So thinking it might help to distance himself from association with Jesus, Peter began to curse and swear. When we hear that kind of language, we assume that person is not a follower of Jesus Christ. And so Peter finally called to mind with the word that Jesus had said to him, but he remembered it was too late. It was after he had sinned. Then all Peter could do was weep bitterly, but he will be restored. And there's a significant contrast between Judas and Peter. Both of them denied Jesus in one way or another, but one was restored and the other was not. Restoring Peter was important to Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus had a private meeting with Peter in Luke 24, verse 34, and a public restoration with Peter in John chapter 21. Judas ended up as an apostate, and Peter was a backslider who suffered spiritual decline from an experience he once enjoyed. <clears throat> 